Thank you, Nate, so much for that holy moment. And in a bit of an unholy moment, um, I'll alert Chet that I have been living in shorts the last several weeks. We'll be definitely in shorts at the uh, beach day next week with boogie board in hand. So bring yours as well, and we can do that together, all right? Um, Hey, I'm Craig Allen, one of the pastors here, and welcome online. So glad to have you here this morning. We're going to be in a rich territory today. Um, I received a text this week from a childhood friend. We keep in touch. The text was primarily two words. It said, I'm angry. And he had attached a screenshot that was announcing that the University of Washington, which was his alma mater, as well as the University of Oregon, were moving from the Pac-10 conference to join the Big Ten, something that USC and UCLA have already done, raising all kinds of questions about geography and numbers and meaning of these things and rivalries because now the Pac-10 will, the Pac-12 will only have four teams in it and the Big Ten will have 18 teams in it. What is going on here? Why did college football have to change? Received another text from a neighborhood friend this week on our neighborhood text stream, and this was good news. It was announcing that that their first grade son was having his first day of school, and they had a cute little picture of him uh, all ready for school until I'm thinking, wait a second, this is Monday, August 1st, how do the school districts not know that, that, that there's still supposed to be five weeks of summer vacation remaining? You know, they knew how to do it back in my day. Why did they change the start of the school that takes away nearly half of the summer from these elementary kids and from their teachers? I don't like that kind of change. Some of the seniors that are alive now, you have been through more change technologically in your lifetime than anybody in the whole, any civilization that the world has ever experienced. And some of it is awesome, right? And some of it is overwhelming. We can think of where money is going with cryptocurrencies being engaged and cash being increasingly avoided and someday to be rejected. We have fears of AI encroaching on us where we may not be able to trust much longer the truthfulness of what our eyes are seeing, what our ears are hearing, or what people are saying. Did it come from a person or from a robot? Is it a deep fake? Is it true? And we can wonder sometimes, could some of this change just slow down a little bit? Do you ever feel like that? At a personal level, What might be some of the change in your life that you didn't choose but you were having to address? There are changes in relationships, changes in education, changes in finances, changes in your health, changes in people who who move or your, uh, your, your relationship changes or changes in culture, things that you didn't choose. Perhaps something is even coming to your mind right now Let it come, name it. What is that change for you that you didn't choose, but you have to deal with? Most of us, we resist change with good reason, right? We can't control it, it's imposed on us. We didn't ask for it, but we're stuck with it. And so we don't like it. 
And yet, then there's this other very interesting reality that when we look at the spiritual life, now everything is flipped, everything is different because this is change that we are inviting. This is change that we do want, even change that we're pursuing because we are actually asking God to transform us, to change us from who we have been to who we are becoming to make us a little less worldly and a little more spiritual, a little bit less selfish and a little bit more like Jesus Christ, the perfect one, the one who never changes, and yet is inviting us to help us change, to become more like him, right? So we're gonna be in this territory today and we're gonna be asking a question, what change does God desire? The book of Hebrews has been all about transition, all about the change from old covenant realities to better realities that are found in Christ through the new covenant that's increasingly breaking in. And this is where we find ourselves uh, yet again in this week's chapter in Hebrews uh, chapter 13, eight to 16. If you, don't have, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there so you'll be ready for us in a moment. Uh, what change does God desire? If we were to pursue in the words of Romans 12 verse one, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable as our spiritual worship, how might that manifest? in a time of radical transformation from a sacrificial system to the singular sacrifice of Jesus Christ raises a question, is there still remaining for us a sacrifice to give? Is there a sacrifice for us to offer God that will please Him? So let's go ahead with those questions in mind and turn to Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verses eight to 16. Begins, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his own body. Go therefore, or therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For there we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for each, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is a challenging paragraph on initial read. This is a challenging scripture passage on multiple reads, but we're gonna be working through it together uh, in three movements, uh, through verse 10, and then verses 11 to 14, and then the last two verses, 15 and 16. And we're gonna see that there's three, uh, three major points together that hopefully tie together in a clear way for us. But basically we're looking at this question, what kind of change does God desire for us? Now, if you or someone that you know 
has come to Christ from a works-based religion, this might be familiar territory for you. If you have tried to, uh, if you have been under pressure, perhaps from an authoritarian over you, to make sure that you are worthy enough or that you um, have enough merit and it doesn't have to be from Judaism that you could be coming from. But there's evidence in our verses today that this sermon letter to the Hebrews is written to former Levitical priests, those who served at the altar, those who were part of the sacrificial system, even participating in that, but who had become believers, had come to Christ, and were coming out of this, and were in this newness, this odd change, that it's no longer about that, and now it's about this, and we don't quite understand it all yet. And you can imagine that there would be pressure to go back to the old system that is familiar to them or to try to understand what more that they have to do to be right with God. Now, um, so, so when we come to this first verse, verse eight, and we see that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can imagine that there's great comfort in that. No matter how much the world is changing, no matter how many things are going berserk, that we can't affect change on. We can't reverse, we can't undermine, we can't underdo, we can't undo. We can be assured that Jesus is constant. He is the faithful one. He can be our life's anchor. He's the one that's not going to change. when the early church fathers read this, they saw this unchangeability in Jesus really as the qualification for how he could be our savior. See, there was God who was in full divinity who came to earth in the incarnation keeping his full divinity yet adding on humanity to that. And that qualified him to be the sole being, the sole person who was fully God and yet fully man. The only bridge that is possible to connect us to God. The only one qualified to be our savior. And there's beautiful, rich theology there. Um, They saw that God in the flesh on earth yesterday, God intercessing as our high priest in heaven through Jesus today and Jesus coming as returning king tomorrow. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. There's also some practical aspects though as we look at this in context that connects verse eight here to verse seven that came before and verse nine that's following. Now verse seven here is about leadership and Robert's going to be talking about spiritual leadership next week so he's gonna be developing this with that next passage. But just to, to connect the dots for the moment, it says remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God Consider the outcome of the way of of their life and imitate their faith. So the basic point here is not to heed the words of what leaders may be saying with all of their falling short and with all of their hypocrisy, but actually to watch their lives, specifically consider their faith that is rooted in the constancy of Jesus Christ, rooted in the faithfulness of Jesus that does not change. We look to Christ through them, through their faithfulness to see his perfect faithfulness. And that keeps us from, uh, verse nine, uh, keeps us from being led astray to other teachings and other bizarre things. So as, um, as we look at this, verse nine, um, 
Let's read this together. Uh, Do not be led astray or led away by diverse teachings or strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Notice the manner in which we are strengthened is given. It's by grace, not by legalisms, but by God's grace. And this is opposed to, it's drawing out, foods here, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, some of you may have uh, embraced food rules from your past, perhaps something like, hey, we're just going to eat fish on Fridays, or we're not going to eat meat, or we're going to try to follow the Old Testament dietary laws. Perhaps that's part of your past or, or the past of someone that you know. It was absolutely the past of these priests who were leaving Judaism and coming to Christ. Um, But Paul, in in Colossians 2, he speaks to this and additional ascetic practices even more strongly, saying that these these human regulations and contexts here, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But notice here, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They don't benefit at all. This warning, though, it highlights that we have a tendency to be led astray. And we have a tendency to add practices that we think are going to help our spirituality. We can think, okay, yeah, I've I've got Jesus. I, I, I know that, but what next? What now? What do I add to that? And that's what both Paul in Colossians and the writer of Hebrews here are saying. We're going in the wrong direction there. There is no value. What we want is to press more deeply into Jesus, to draw near to Jesus ever more closely, to more fully experience Him in our lives and in our hearts so that more and more of our life is oriented around Jesus. We're not adding other things to Jesus. We're allowing the reality of Jesus to penetrate more deeply into our lives and into our hearts. So that happens through the grace of God, and that comes from pursuing Christ. So verse 10 says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. It's picking up on the the playfulness of words here relating to food of the prior verse. They had food that was from the sacrificed animals, but they have no right to feast on Christ unless they know him, unless they leave that altar and come to the new altar. See, the the tabernacle wasn't a sanctuary like we're prone to think of it. It wasn't a gathering worship place like this where they're singing songs and listening to sermons so much as it was a slaughterhouse. It was a a butcher block. This is a, a picture of an an artist's rendition of what the altar may have looked like. This is where animals were placed, their throats were slit, their bodies were burned, some of the food was eaten, the rest of the carcasses were sent, we're gonna see outside the camp, and the blood was splattered on the holy things, the holy items within the tabernacle. Notice not that the blood needed to be wiped off, but quite the opposite, the blood was the cleansing agent. The blood symbolically was the life of the animal that brought cleansing to those holy items. Here's the good news for us under the new covenant. Jesus is our altar, or more specifically, the altar of Jesus 
is the cross on which he died. The butcher block of Jesus was the cross, and so Jesus on the cross, that becomes our altar. That's the altar that we have. Now, we can be tempted to go back or to want more, right? Okay, I've got Jesus. What do I add? The point is that there is nothing more to get beyond Jesus, outside of him. There is no Jesus plus something else. There's just this opportunity to go deeper with Jesus. So the second thing here this morning is don't add to Jesus. Jesus alone is enough. He gives us full access to God. So we could say Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Meanwhile, Jesus plus anything equals something less. We try to add to Jesus, it ends up being a reduction. That's the way the spiritual math works. So we're going to read uh, verse 11 here. Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. Now this is an allusion to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 27. And to get the background for these next several verses, we really have to go back to Leviticus to understand the context of what the writer of Hebrews is drawing from. We've got to know what's going on there. Now, let me ask you if any of you have had this experience in your life where you decided, okay, this is the year I'm going to read the Bible through and I'm going to do it. So you start in Genesis, right? And you've got momentum, you're staying right on track, you're loving the narratives. It's like one book down, awesome. Exodus coming up, you've got momentum. And you're reading Exodus' first half of the book, it's going well, it's very reminiscent of, of, of the momentum that you felt with, with Genesis and you're still right on track. And then you get to the second half of Exodus and you notice that it gets a little bit harder, starting to get bogged down just a little bit. Might be a couple days behind, but you're you're still gonna pull through. And then you get to the book of Leviticus, right? And within a few days, thus ends the reading of the scriptures. And it's like, you know what? I'll try again next year. I'll 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 do it next year. Well, I wanna give you some handles to hopefully help some of you who are trying to get a handle on Leviticus and and maybe be able to press through with some knowledge. By the way, never try to do a Bible read through without a commentary or without some overview guide or a study Bible. Be infinitely helpful to have a roadmap to help you through these these difficult places. But uh, with some appreciation to Tim Mackey here is just a quick overview. Uh, five books of the Old Testament law by Moses called the Torah. You've got Genesis, the book of beginnings, and you've got Deuteronomy, the fifth book, the second law. These are, these are the bookends, okay? And then we have Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers in the middle of the law. And in the middle of the middle of the law, we've got the book of Leviticus placed there for primacy of importance. All right, and then within the book of Leviticus, it's got itself three sections there. In the middle section, chapters eight through 16, that's the heart of Leviticus. It's the middle of the middle of the middle of the law, and the most significant chapter is the climax in chapter 16, which is the Day of Atonement. Perhaps some of you have heard it also called Yom Kippur. The reason is, In this middle section, chapters eight through 16, it's about how God can dwell in the camp. 
It's how the items of the camp can be cleansed and the, and the priests can be cleansed and what offerings are acceptable and by what means they need to be presented to become acceptable and all of the rules that allow God to reside in their camp are given in those chapters and most specifically detailed in the Day of Atonement, the one time a year that the high priest does his most holy work. So we're gonna look at this briefly, uh, starting in verse five, uh, but as we do this, we're gonna be, uh, I'm gonna say, there's two things that I want you to take note of and be looking out for. One is the two goats, and the other is this phrase, outside the camp, all right? So in verse five, the first thing we wanna see is that there's two male goats that combine for one sin offering. It says verse five, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a, for a singular sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. Notice that this is the only place in the entire sacrificial system that two animals are required to make one offering. Pretty significant here. Verse eight, and Aaron, who was the first high priest, he shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord, that's his divine name, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the other for, and there's a strange word, Azazel. Notice the last two letters there, Ale, the word for God. There are many theologians that have become convinced that there's an offering for Yahweh, the true God of Israel, and there's something going on for the demonic God, the pretend God in the wilderness, Azazel. I don't have time to develop it, but just keep that in mind. We get to verse nine. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for Yahweh and use it as a sin offering. So that one's going to be slaughtered. That's the first goat. The second goat, verse 10, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make atonement for it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. A couple more verses, you don't have them, but Aaron shall then kill the goat uh, for the sin offering for Israel's God, and, that's, and that involves the sprinkling of the mercy seat, the cleaning of, the, the cleansing of the atonement cover there. And then verse 21, the high priest now is going to lay his hands onto the goat, representing all of the, the sins and the transgressions and the iniquities of all of the people of Israel laid on to the head of this second goat that is not going to be killed. Rather, he's going to be sent off outside the camp into the wilderness out to Azazel. So we look at verse 22, and it says that that goat shall, or yeah, that goat shall bear the iniquities that goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself into the wilderness, meaning outside the camp to the place where the demons reign. And then verse, seven, verse 27, and this is the key verse that Hebrews 13 was, was quoting. It says, and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, it shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and flesh and dung shall be burned with fire. Um, and that's the first goat. In verse 30, climactically here, for on this day, 
shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before Yahweh for all of your sins. So that's the purpose of the day of atonement. Now here's the simple takeaway. There's two goats, right? Goat two has all of the sins of all the people placed on his head and he's sent out to the wilderness outside the camp. Meanwhile, goat one is sacrificed. His blood is poured out on the altar and his carcass, his, blood, his, his body, his entrails, everything else, his excrement is sent outside the camp to be burned. Um, so that's, that's the story of what's happening there. And the point is that these things that are, be sent, that are being sent outside are being sent outside the presence of God because they are unholy, okay? Now, the next verse in chapter 13 is verse 12, and it makes a connection here to Jesus. It says, so Jesus also suffered, where? Outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his own blood. So notice, this is not the blood of animals now. This is Jesus' own blood, and his suffering takes place outside the camp. And we're gonna see three times here this usage of outside the camp, or Jesus' sacrifice outside the gate, and again, outside the camp. Remember, that's been established for the entirety of Israel's sacrificial system. That's where the unholy things go and it required ceremonial cleansing to come back into the camp. So be ready for this. This is where the unexpected scandal comes in, all right? This is the offense to Jews that Paul talks about, the foolishness to Greeks, and the potential confusion for us here. Verse 13, this is the climactic verse of the passage. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Wait a second. Go where? Meet him where and do what? Is this a misprint? Is the writer of Hebrews a heretic or is he confused? Doesn't he know that that's where all the unholy things are? God is, God is here in the temple. God is here in the tabernacle. It's the unholy things out there. What is going on here? This is this startling reality of the new covenant that Jesus went outside the camp to purify us with his blood and he calls us to join him there. Wow, that's different. That is a change. Verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. For the Jews of this time and for these priests who were in process of leaving the Levitical system, coming to Christ and trying to find God outside of the temple, they had to recognize God is no longer there. God has left the building as it were. There is no lasting city here in Jerusalem. We have to seek a city that is to come. And so as we engage this verse 2,000 years later, 
We anticipate the arrival of the new Jerusalem, that city that will one day come down from heaven as the new heavens will be joined to the new earth. That's our long-term hope. But we have an, an increasing breaking in reality in our present that God is breaking in among us. Just as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in us. And so we participate in both senses here. God's kingdom comes to us now every time that we go outside the camp to where Jesus is and share his reproach among others who need him, when we do that, we experience his healing presence in our lives and we experience gospel empowerment for ministry to them. This is our present reality. And later, we will receive our full reward when this upside down world that sometimes seems so insane to us, when it will be finally turned right side up with a full breaking in of the final kingdom of God, with the new Jerusalem at Christ's return, and that is our future hope. So this means that like the first century former Levites who came to Christ, we also need to reject the former ways. We need to move out of our comfort zones. And for most of us, that's not related to Old Covenant Judaism. So we have to ask then, well, so what, what is it? What is it for us? Well, perhaps we could start with no longer living for the ease or the security or the comfort of this world or the things that we know because these things are passing away. Our values have changed. The essence of Jesus' reproach was that he was rejected by people, people who didn't understand what he was doing, people who had been persuaded by demonic values. And so part of joining Jesus is bearing his reproach also. Similarly, in the world, going there not out of fear and not out of our own courageousness, but going there recognizing that Jesus is already there, and when we go, he is then with us. And that can give us the freedom to be able to share his reproach with other people, to speak truth to people who may reject us, but we know that they have already rejected him. So we're in good company. And that actually should give us a freedom and a confidence in him. Jesus was expelled from what was previously holy. So now, Wherever he is, is the new holy place. Wherever Jesus is, is the new holy space. So where do we go meet him? Where is this new holy space? Well, again, it's outside the camp. It's outside in the wilderness. It's outside where all of the refuse and garbage and carcasses and excrement was thrown, all of the unholy things among the pagans and the Gentiles and those who rejected Christ. Jesus, he waged war in the wilderness, the beginning of his ministry with the devil in the desert wilderness, right? He's, he then suffered and died there at the end of his ministry. So this is the same place that we will go to meet Jesus, the same place that we go to wage war against the enemy of our souls and the same tasks that we have to bring souls, lost souls to him where he is, where they are. So Jesus calls us to join him in this dark world, 
to join him among the people of his day, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, the centurions, the dirty fishermen. And we wonder, well, then who's he calling us to today? Who's outside in our wilderness? And some of us might think immediately of like left-wing extremists. Some others of us might think of right-wing radicals. Or we might think of the LGBTQA plus community. Or we might think of those who tend to have fentanyl overdoses. But a little closer to home, we might also think of just our neighbors and the soccer coaches and the school teachers, the music teachers, and the people at the grocery stores, the people that we see every day, the people that we're gonna see next week on the beach, the people that God has placed us in among this wilderness that exists outside the camp, that God is calling us to love them because Jesus is among them, but he needs to be revealed to them. By whom? By us. By us, and he's with us there. Because every time uh, that we remember, he bore our sin, and we bear his message, and we take that message to them, he will be with us. There's another perhaps more personal application here. There's a wilderness that remains in our hearts. We could say the outside of the camp areas that are within my human heart. Think of those messy, still unholy, as yet unhealed areas of my life and my heart. These parts of ourselves that we don't want to acknowledge we don't want to talk about. We don't want anyone else to draw attention to. As far as we're concerned, we are much more comfortable pressing those things down and choosing to never deal with them, never address them. But these are unhealed places where the internal demons still rage and they still poke their heads out in inopportune moments, usually revealed in our anxieties. And the good news of the new covenant is that Jesus has also entered there the deep wilderness of our hearts, and he invites us to let him in, to come and clean those very places, those places of wounds, those places of brokenness, those places of as yet ongoing sin. Jesus calls us to come to him, to bear his reproach, to take the remaining internal darkness and filth of our hearts and lay it upon our Savior who has come not merely to cover it like on the Day of Atonement, but actually to remove it completely, right? Some of us need help in that process. Some of us need a trusted friend to do that with us. Some of us need a small group to walk that through with us. All of us need somebody that we can trust our lives to, not only for our celebrations, but for the dark part of our hearts where we still need Jesus to heal our wounds and need the community to participate with us in being as Christ to us and walking that road with us that we might be healed that's part of the message of the gospel. So we join Jesus outside 
where he is. Uh, three scenarios to consider. One, where is it that you might imagine to be the place of spiritual darkness? I just want you to imagine for a moment when you think of a place or among a people where demons rule, unholy values dominate, somewhere or some group of people that seem to be so opposite of the truth of God, so unaware of his mercy and his ways and his law, what comes to mind in your heart? What comes to mind for you? Is it possible that God is bringing that to your mind because he desires for you to actually engage it? That he desires for you to go into that wilderness in some form to find Christ who is there and to bring his reality to them. Wow. Is anybody bored with your spirituality right now? Anybody feel like, I've been plateaued for a while, I just, I just need something new. Okay, I don't wanna add Jesus, but so what are my other options? Well, here's an option is to prayerfully ask God, God, where are you at work in my world? Maybe I don't have to go out in some crazy place. In, in the midst of my current life that you have called me to, God, where are you at work? Can you open my eyes and show me a place that I can join you, that I can serve alongside you, that I can highlight you there? What a great prayer. Or in that third territory, um, where might you need God's healing presence in your life, in your heart? God, I need your comfort. I need the reminders of your truth. I need your healing balm. I need your assurance. God, would you come meet me? Where is that place in your heart? Know that Jesus is there, again, in the wilderness of your heart, outside the camp of your heart. He is there. So Jesus' sacrifice did end the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which raises a question, how do we live in a way that pleases God now? Is there any remaining sacrifice that God still desires from us? And the answer is yes, yes, absolutely. But what is it? Well, and this is where the passage ends so, so beautifully. Uh, And let's look here. And verses 15 to 16, it says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share with what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The key to these sacrifices that God receives that are pleasing to him is that they are offered through Jesus. They're offered through him. So, We offer sacrifices through Jesus. That means living life with him, seeing him as our mediator to God and the one who connects us with one another. So we don't sacrifice annually. We sacrifice daily, continually, perpetually. We're to live lives of perpetual sacrifice. So like the great command, it extends in two directions. Toward God, these sacrifices look like praise and thanksgiving and gratitude. 
And toward one another, toward people, they look like serving. They look like expressions of koinonia, of participation together in one's lives, in one's hearts, perhaps in one's checkbooks, meeting one another's needs. It's a ministry of generosity toward one another. These are various expressions of love toward God and toward people. What could this look like? Well, we can start every morning putting our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and thanking him for our day, thanking him for his provision. We can reclaim at mealtime the prayers that thank God for the food that he has provided, that we don't take that for granted. And we can extend from there into the other blessings that we're aware of that God has brought into our life as he has joined us. Do you recognize that all of us once lived in the wilderness. The gospel message, remember, it started from Jerusalem, and they were to take the gospel to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. We are the uttermost parts of the world. 2,000 years later, it's just we have become the beneficiaries of outposts of the gospel. As those who have gone outside the camp and missionaries have brought the gospel here, and many of us are long-term multi-generational heritage beneficiaries of the gospel that we have received because God is here with us. So we can thank God for that and have a life of gratitude based on that. But what do we do when we hit a challenge, we hit an obstacle? Something happens to us by a coworker at work and now we have two hours of extra work that we didn't plan for. Or we've got an illness or something that is making life a lot harder than it was supposed to be. Or we've got some traffic or something that we can't control and all of a sudden our day that we had planned has gotten difficult and our anxieties start to build up within us and take whatever the form that they tend to take. We notice that we're becoming a little bit more irritable. Our heart is racing. We're in danger of wounding somebody or saying something that we're gonna have to apologize for. At these times we can recognize God, the wilderness is erupting. I'm feeling the presence of the outside of the camp. God, would you send Jesus? I need him now. I need his calming presence. I need the one who has defeated the enemy. I need that peace that he brings. Would he be my prince of peace now? I was looking at the clutter in our house yesterday, not in Lisa's part of the house, in my part of the house. And I'm looking around my room and thinking, do I need all of this stuff? Elise has been talking to me for a long time saying, we gotta start getting rid of things. And I'm thinking, you're right, we do. And I'm thinking, who can I give some of this stuff to? Who could use it better? If it's just sitting in a box, maybe I don't need it. Or if it's just cluttering my desk, maybe I can give it away to someone who needs it more. Today is one of those days where we're going to have a benevolence offering where we give sacrificially to those who don't have, who are maybe having trouble meeting rent or making a car payment or something else. And we do this once a month uh, to, to match those who want to minister to God generously to benefit for others who are in need. That'll be happening at the end of the service. This is one of those opportunities where we can do that and we can be prayerful and say, Lord, would you help me be generous and sacrificially so. So in a moment, we're gonna continue worshiping, offering a sacrifice of praise through music and through communion. Uh, We get an opportunity to offer sacrifices of praise that acknowledge his name. What could this look like? Well, it can look like when Nate's leading the upcoming songs that you were singing from the bottom of your hearts with all of the strength and energy that you have 
not because you're an energetic person, but because Jesus has transformed your life and this is part of your expression of gratitude to him. And when we're passing out the communion elements and there's an opportunity to be prayerful, to just briefly thank the Lord Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for being that sacrificial offering that has made all of the difference. We wonder, um, what can a life that is pleasing to God look like? You know what? It can look like having spiritual conversations with unbelievers in places that we would not be naturally drawn to go But maybe this new analogy is helpful, that these outer places, these dark places, Jesus is already there, and he's calling us to join him there. So take courage. It can look like hanging out with your life group, where koinonia is perhaps best expressed, where you're sharing of lives, sharing of hearts, telling your truest stories, including your deepest hurts and those places that you need God's healing grace and entrusting those people that you love to go with you and to walk with you and to help bring Jesus to you in those places. So what does a life pleasing to God looks like, look like? Well, to pursue gratitude and generosity. And I wanna close with a story to help kind of cement this or illustrate this. Some of you are aware of the Boston Marathon, the most famous marathon in the entire world. There are people who consider it uh, their prized possession among the long distance running community to have a medal from the Boston Marathon, a finisher's medal that you only get if you complete it. And so people train for years to be able to qualify a year in advance to be able to run the Boston Marathon. Well, 10 years ago, 2013, on tax day in Boston, Laura Wellington has run 25.7 miles of the marathon. She has only a half mile to remain when two bombs went off at the finish line and immediately the race was over. You can imagine how distraught she was. She was planning on finishing. She was almost there and she had worked so hard. Well, a passing stranger who had finished the race about a half hour earlier, he's walking around and he happens to notice her. Here's, Here's a woman who's on the curb sitting down crying She's got a race number, but she has no medal on her head, around her neck. So he goes up to her and he asks her, in view of the finish line, he asks her, did you finish the race? And through tears, she shakes her head and says, no. And then he does something remarkable. He takes the medal off of his neck that he had earned, and he put it onto her, and he said, you are a finisher. And she broke down and wept and he hugged her and then he walked away. And she tries to tell this story on Facebook saying, I don't know who this remarkable stranger was who loved me in this unbelievable way. I have his medal. I don't even know his name. And she tells the story of this good Samaritan online. Well, 24 hours later, this has gone viral. It's been seen by a quarter of a million people. And sure enough, somebody knows somebody who knows somebody who knows Brent Cunningham of Sitka, Alaska. And they get connected and come to find out that he'd been training for two years from this race 
He just barely qualified by, by the nick of his nose and was so excited to be there and to run this race and to get this finisher's medal. But when he saw her, he realized and he said, she needed the medal more than I did. My whole life is about loving God and loving others. And this was his beautiful expression of sacrificial generosity to a stranger. In a world where so much is constantly changing that we cannot control, we can grieve, but we cannot control it, there's good news that Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, he is the unchanging one that we can remain rooted to. His call on our life can completely startle us. He may call us increasingly to unholy places, places that we thought we never wanted to be, things that we thought were cursed places, places that we have labeled unholy. But now Jesus is there to redeem them and to use us, his people, as part of that redemptive process. He's calling us to join him where he is and where he's at work. So we don't want to add to Jesus. We do want to join Jesus outside. And we want to live lives pursuing gratitude and generosity. Putting this together, what change does God desire? To join Jesus outside the camp. Live a life of gratitude and generosity. I'm trying to ponder what this means for me. How can I create more space in my life to live more of my life outside the camp? How can I create more space to invite Jesus into the darker places into my heart and to walk more closely with him that he can do healing in those places? I encourage you to pray about those same kinds of things, perhaps during communion, perhaps on Tuesday night when we gather over here. Derek is gonna be joining me. We're gonna be co-leading our prayer time on Tuesday night at seven. This will be one of the areas, one of the territories that we'll be inviting people to pray about and to further this area. Uh, Let's close in prayer, even right now. Then we'll worship. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for our time and your word. Thank you for the startling ways in which you are using Jesus in our world and in our lives and in our hearts. May we be more and more receptive to Jesus and more responsive to his workings. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.